You know the saying, "Money makes the world go round." Well, in a global pandemic, governments around the world are trying to balance the needs of people and our health versus keeping the economy going. Have a listen. This is the kind of thing we've been hearing all year in the news. Here's a clip of Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor of Texas. My message is that um, let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it.、Uh, and those of us who are seventy plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Literally. Welcome to What Do We Do Tomorrow, a podcast from Six Degrees at the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, made by the Walrus Lab. I'm Hannah Sung. Today, I'm getting into a conversation on the economy and the ways in which it doesn't seem to serve all of us. Why, in a pandemic, do big decisions seem to come down to the economy versus everything else? Because for the last forty years, we prioritized making money over everything else. And that is the sea we swim in when it comes to economics. That's economist Armin Yalnizian. And to understand how we got here to a place where we do live in a world that prioritizes money above all else, we need a crash course in economics and history. Armin is a perfect person to give that to us. Her career as an economist has focused on the social and economic factors that determine our health and well-being. She's an outspoken progressive economist and currently a fellow with the Atkinson Foundation, doing collaborative research on the future of workers in a period of technological change. She's also the person who coined the term "she session," taking her feminist lens to the economic fallout from COVID-19. The concept of a she session is about how the lack of universal childcare and the disastrous effects of COVID have combined to potentially set women back decades when it comes to being in the paid workforce. COVID has given us the term essential worker, but let's really think about how we value the caring professions, the people who look after the young, the old, and the sick. And if we don't value that labor, what does it cost us in other terms that aren't dollars and cents? It's a very big conversation we're about to have, so I wanted to start by just getting to know Armin Yalnizian a little bit better. Armin, you have done so many different things in your career, but I just kind of want to start with you, and I want to ask, how did you become an economist? I have a really perverse sense of humor, I think, <laughs> <laughs> and、uh, I had thought I was finished with school when I ended high school, and I wanted to travel and work, and I did that for about eight years, and then I realized I'm not going to be able to make a lot more money unless I get papers. So I went to school at the ripe age of 26 or 27, and. Discovered economics 101, which told me as a 26-year-old woman that the fundamental microeconomic choice for most people was the choice between work and leisure. And I thought, you're joking me, right? Like, where's the vector for unpaid work? Because as a woman, I was surrounded by people doing unpaid work, and therein began a perverse love affair with. A discipline that treats people as inputs and treats choices that white males with backups will make as the norm for everybody, and yet it's it's still predictive. So I just had to learn more about how does this thing work because the basic assumptions are garbage, 
And yet it, it is not only somewhat predictive or at least explanatory, but it's the go-to discipline for making decisions that affect my life. So how does that work? And consequently, I have been interested in labor economics and how people fit into the economic story from day one, because it's been perverse, in my opinion, (laughs) and yet fascinating. You know, it's so interesting when you talk about your kind of discovery as a mature student of, you know, economics, because sometimes I feel like the discipline of economics can seem fairly opaque to the layperson in the way that science kind of is, or that we just see it as neutral. But it really seems like you brought your lens and your life experience to your studies. Yeah, I, you know, people say you should leave your baggage at the door. As far as I can tell, we are our baggage. Um, and so you just learn how to use what's in the bag a little bit better. And I wanted to learn the tools that made the powerful so powerful. Uh, I want to understand how those narratives shaped my lived reality. And I actually graduated in the middle of the 81-82 recession, which was the worst recession we had seen since the 1930s. So I couldn't get a job for love or money. And I went back to more school. And in that process, I ended up working for my idol, uh, Sylvia Austri, who had just returned from Paris as the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD's chief economist. And when she was in Canada, she had been the chief statistician at what was then called the Dominion Bureau of Statistics, which became Statistics Canada. And she was the first person I studied in economics that talked about gendered differences in labor market realities. She was just such a forward-thinking person. She went ahead and helped the Mulroney government create the free trade agreement. You know, she was part of a worldview that said we are all interrelated and we can all be far better off when we are interrelated. But recognizing that there will be collateral damage in that process was part of her incredible gift. And often you get the cheerleaders for these new game changers without talking about who are the left behinds. And as an Armenian, I can't help but think about the left behinds. And are we doing everything we can to not let people perish? Today, who would you say are the people who are being left behind in this economic reality? The same people that were have been left behind now for decades. And there will always be people that are marginalized in a story. And it's always the same people that are marginalized. In other words, people that don't look like the decision makers, people who are not white, male, mid-career, and well-educated. If you are white and poorly educated, if you're white and young, and now you are going to face the same problems with everybody else. That's why we have this thing called GBA plus analysis, gender based analysis plus for all the groups that are essentially non-white male, well-educated mid-career because everybody else gets systemically waylaid. Some people have called this the K recession because uh, people even in the pandemic have been doing better and better and better. And some people in the pandemic have been doing worse and worse and worse. It's a disputed reality, the K-recession, amongst economists, because it's a lazy way of thinking about a recession, graphically speaking. But it's certainly evocative in saying that there are two pathways for a recovery. One is that the people that weren't very badly hurt are doing even better than ever. And we're seeing that 
as you know, with savings rates going through the roof. So their wealth and equity is increasing. And in the meantime, we're seeing people who were knocked out of the labor market first, who were primarily low wage women, young people and racial minorities and recent immigrants, because it was primarily a service recession initially rather than a goods recession, which has historically been the case, which led me to call it a she-session. Historically, all recessions have been he-sessions. Men working in manufacturing and construction and mining, they lose their jobs. In the immediate period of recovery, women roll up their sleeves and they take whatever works out there because men don't want to go from $30 an hour to $15 an hour, but a woman will pick up some hours of work just to keep food on the table while the guy is looking for the right fit. And the more I thought about the K-shaped recovery, the more I thought every recession is K-shaped. In every recession, you get the people with less bargaining power, less education, less labor market experience, finding it harder to get back in than the people that didn't lose their jobs in their first place or bounced right back. You know, their, their job was temporarily lost and then came right back. And so I think we're just starting to normalize the conversation about not just unemployment rates or saving rates or these sort of things, but starting to talk about the distribution of these things, that it isn't a one-size-fits-all macroeconomic indicator that we need to be worrying about. We need to be worrying about the composition of who is getting ahead and who's getting left behind and by what degree, because it'll always happen. But is it getting worse? And is there anything we can do about it? And the short answer is, yes, there is not only during the pandemic, but on the other side of the pandemic. And the reason for that is population aging, which is going to open up the door to all sorts of possibilities that we have never seen before. I know it's really hard to think about this right now in the middle of a pandemic, but we will be looking at endemic labor shortages everywhere, which opens the door to training and offering employment opportunities to people that did not get training and employment opportunities, like indigenous populations, like a lot of young people that dropped out of school, like racial minorities, like recent immigrants, all these people can be actually invested in to maximize their potential and then actually contribute more. But there is door number two in this story. And what Canada has historically done, what Canadian businesses has done is to wait till the last moment to fill their labor and skill shortages and then freak out that their business will be slowed because they don't have the right people and the right job. And then turn to the government and say, can you please turn on the taps for temporary foreign workers, migrant workers, skilled and low skilled? We need them all because we did not train them. We did not prepare the pipeline for talent. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want the freak out to happen. I just have to say, when you say freak out, it makes me feel anxious, which is like the low grade anxiety throughout the entire pandemic when it comes to basically everything. But, you know, speaking of the pandemic, like a lot of the communication coming from politicians and in the media has really pitted the economy versus health or the economy versus policies that might, you know, protect citizens and people and workers? Why is it always the economy versus? I just want an economist to tell me why that has to be. Because for the last 40 years, we prioritize making money over everything else. And that is the sea we swim in when it comes to economics. Economic growth, GDP growth, stock market growth, all of these forms of dollar growth 
more foreign direct investment and more recently quantitative easing and stock prices and trades, all of these things have outsized importance because economics has become synonymous with making money. And that is a rabbit hole we went down. And that was a very vigorous debate in the post-war period, post-World War II, about what is the nature of the economy and the role of government as far as people and rebuilding economic capacity are concerned. And it got resolved in 1980 with the Washington Consensus, which was the IMF, the World Bank, and the Bretton Woods institutions generally basically saying, repeating after Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, the economy, there is no such thing as society, the economy rules. And GDP growth became the number one public policy priority in especially English-speaking nations, but because those nations controlled these international lending institutions, it became the structural reform movement for, or the rules under which these institutions would lend money to development countries. But the idea that GDP growth is good for everybody, first of all, required having GDP. And we only started measuring that uh, to understand what were the resources we could call on during war. Right? How, how big was our capacity to respond to threats from outside? That, that's how GDP became a thing that we would measure. And, and just to quickly, like gross domestic product, what is the equation for that? The classic equation for that is household consumption plus business investment plus government spending plus the net of exports, which is money you make, minus imports, which is money you send offshore to buy your stuff. That's the equation. It's like a household budget, but writ large for your nation. Yeah, it's all the different people that are buying stuff, plus the stuff, the money you give because you're buying imports. And it's that combination, everybody's traded activities, dollar activities that constitutes GDP. So we're only measuring things that we're buying, right? But it actually gives a sense of how much purchasing power is in society. And consequently, how could you marshal it to protect yourself? That's where the idea came from. But then in the 1950s, after the Second World War, an economist named Simon Kuznets started an enormously evocative study of GDP, GDP and um, purchasing power as far back as he could get it through all individual European nations, the United States, Canada did a contribution to it. Um, so some of these studies go back hundreds of years. And what he was trying to show was, does in industrialization create more inequality or create less inequality? And what he found was, as you become industrialized, as your country starts taking on these technological innovations, initially there's more inequality. But then more people rise up. And that's where the colloquialism of a rising tide lifts all boats comes from, is this mountain of data internationally that showed that Yes, initially industrialization sucks because you create real winners and losers. But in a very short period of time, more people are lifted out of poverty and onto a track of more purchasing power, which is deemed to be how you reduce poverty, right? More money is less poverty. So that was where the idea came from. And then around the year of the late 1990s, published in the early 2000s, 
the now very famous Thomas Piketty from France and Emmanuel Saez from California reprised all this work using a, a database that the Luxembourg Income Study had slowly cobbled together, which then just said what happened since the 50s to now, and they saw that continued advancement of capitalist economies led to more inequality. GDP growth was leading to more inequality, not less, so it reversed the Kuznets curve, which is you start off with high inequality and then you drop down. And now these guys showed that it go from lower inequality to higher inequality for precisely the same process of advancing capitalism. And that was a bit of a head turner. That's where the 99% meme came from, is that 1% was doing really, really well. In fact, some subsection of that 1% was doing better and better over time. And most people in most countries were not seeing massive improvements and some were actually getting left behind. And it did depend on what country you were in. For example, France saw no increase in inequality because of very strict labor laws in particular. But most countries have seen a falling share of labor income, the money that gets paid to workers over the last 40 years. So the idea that the Washington consensus and putting your all your eggs in the growth basket is good for the broad society was proven a failed social experiment. It was essentially the model was trickle-down theory. Give more money to the people who know how to make more money and wealth will trickle down, right? They will create the conditions, which includes more jobs, that will trickle down. But in fact, if they did that, they did it in a country, not in a neighborhood near you, right? They did it somewhere else so that more jobs were being outsourced because of globalization. More jobs were being automated because of technological change. There was more downward pressure on wages because there was always somebody waiting in the wing to do it cheaper. And uh, that meant that over time, the labor share shrank in virtually every advanced industrialized country, which means the capital share grew. So the capitalists, of course, want to see a continuation of trickle-down. That's what's working. That's a magic formula for them. Get out of my way. You know, trickle-down is basically less government, more market. I do believe the pandemic is turning that on its head. Do you? Do you feel optimistic about that? I can't say I feel optimistic, but I would say that the pandemic is shining a light that says we got it exactly upside down. Right. right. That it is more important to protect people than to protect capital. It is more important to make sure governments don't step out of the way when we need them than making sure that somebody can make more money. Now, whether we will make good on this revelation is unclear. There's a lot of vested interests, and they are more powerful than they have ever been on a global level, not just on an individual national level. But that's why you're hearing so much about antitrust regulation again, right? That's why you're hearing about international efforts to make sure the rules align so that people can't shift their profits and shift their income so they don't pay taxes at all. But this is now a global story of what is the appropriate role of individual daring do and collective efforts to level the playing field so that everybody can maximize their potential. But when it comes to leveling the playing field, you know, we've talked about the 1% and extreme income disparity and when people are economically disenfranchised, it can be very difficult for them to be empowered to feel 
politically enfranchised, you know, it's very difficult to have power in this society when you have no money, when you're scrambling to survive. So what are the ways in which we can decouple the idea of growth, right? Just like this blind adherence to like GDP growth and and caring for people. And what would be like the first step in a transition to a more care-based economy than a purchasing power economy? Well, you are absolutely right that the big reveal of the pandemic has been that the essential economy is supported by the caring economy. And um, we're seeing that both in terms of, you know, the hit summer song that I wrote, no recovery without a sheet covery, no sheet covery without childcare. Yeah, we're not seeing sheet covery because we're losing childcare. And without a sheet covery, we can't get back to recovery. So those, the very jurisdictions that have been the most gaga about reopening the economy and recovering GDP and getting back to normal, in quotation marks, are the ones that have been twiddling their thumbs as this critical sector of the economy, the caring sector of the economy, has been reduced. You know, the people that care for the people that are too old, too young, and too sick for work to work, in Canada, we are very lucky that the people that care for people that are too sick to work are publicly funded. Even so, we have some jurisdictions that are laying off health workers or making it more difficult for these people to do their work, especially if they're not doctors and nurses, because those are workers with very strong unions that will fight back. But orderlies, cleaners, lab technicians, they're all exposed to deregulation and job cutbacks in, in some provinces inexplicably uh, in the middle of a pandemic. It is much harder for a barista or a dry cleaner or a childcare worker or a long-term care worker to exercise any kind of pushback because they're not organized, number one. And number two, the system is built around profit. This, the long-term care system is primarily um, for profit and the majority of the for-profit sector is dominated by chains, according to a Canadian Medical Association journal article. And chains are chains because they deliver dividends to their investors. And they deliver dividends because in a highly labor-intensive sector, the way you do that is by cutting costs and cutting labor costs in particular. We are poised to do the exact same thing in the sector that delivers care to our youngest learners, and that is childcare. The places that are nonprofit are getting ticked off pretty damn fast. And so we're in the process of creating exactly the same thing. And I'm going to tell you that we, as consumers of these services and as workers in these sectors, need to get the governments that don't understand we need these services out of the way. We need to pressure them when they're in office and vote them out if they don't do the right thing. And we've got demographics on our side. I'm going to go right back to the well of population aging. What population aging means is in Canada, one in four persons in just a few years is going to be over the age of 65. Guess what? These are the baby boomers. Their parents did everything they could to give them all the services they needed their whole life and damned if they're not going to expect more services as they ride off into the sunset. So that's going to pre create a lot of pressure on governments to make sure we provide more, not less services. So this 
group of working age population, I'm looking at you, Hannah. I'm looking at all the people that are younger than you that are going to be lifting up everybody else to their paid work. You are going to need help to, if you can't see a wage increase because of all the political pressure to keep inflation low, then you can still see an improvement in your quality of life by having affordable childcare, affordable housing, affordable transit, dental care, vision care, pharma care, and we need the world we are operating in to be more nonprofit driven than it has been for all of our lives. And that is not going to change on a dime, but guaranteed it will change. And the reason for that is population aging. And, you know, so you're an economist and I want to, I want to mention some numbers and headlines. You know, when we say we want these social programs and then there are headlines like Canada's on track towards a $330 billion deficit, which is called, you know, unsustainable. And then in the U.S., a deficit of $3.1 trillion for 2020, which has tripled from the previous year. How worried are you about deficits? Um, I can't say I'm not worried, but I'm not worried uh, because it's just money. We've gone through the looking glass. The pandemic has pushed us all through the looking glass on what is the value of money. We've looked at stock markets breaking records while we have historic numbers of people that are long-term unemployed. Like money isn't it. It's it for some people. And we've pumped money into the system since the global financial crisis of 2008, but it's gone, gotten into more and more concentrated hands. So the story I was saying earlier about inequality is on stilts now. And yet there's this other conversation where you can't eat money and people are the voters, dollars aren't the voters, and people are rising up. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but the world is boiling over. It isn't just Canada and the U.S. It's all over the world. People are on the street demanding changes of government. They are demanding better from their elected leaders. In many cases, the elections are shams. So you're right. There is this incomprehensible schism between why are governments doing like so little in the middle of a pandemic, sometimes doing actually the opposite of what is required. For example, in Ontario, Manitoba and Alberta, you've got governments actively deregulating the qualifications of early childhood educators and increasing class sizes, uh, classes for infants and toddlers, increasing class sizes in a pandemic. It's like, what planet are you on? And who is government? Government is not it. It's not them. It's us. Governments are us. So we have to be far more vigilant. I mean, like the price of democracy is eternal vigilance, making sure you vote, making sure you keep an eye on what your elected officials say they're doing and what they actually are doing, challenging them when they do what you think is the wrong thing. And that's true for every point of the political spectrum, because sometimes I will listen to a libertarian and think, yeah, I just had not thought of things that way. Like we need to listen to one another. Yet sometimes I'm not going to agree. For sure. Sometimes I think you're in Lululand, but if we keep our ears open, we're going to hear things that are going to help us get through this better. The problem is that we are shutting down our patients for one another. And one side of the ledger is being pumped full of not just more money, but more fake news. And that means that 
a rational system of discourse and debate, the continuation of the Enlightenment is over. We have reached some kind of limit to the discursive resolution of problems. And I don't know what that next phase is. It's the Gramsci, you know, the old is dead, but the new is not yet born. We're in the interregnum. Something very big is changing. This isn't just about democracy and capitalism. It's the way we, as pack animals, live together because pack animals need to trust one another and trust is eroding because of deliberately false information and because of increasing polarization, not just of incomes and living conditions, but of the way we talk to one another and who we talk to. So something very big is happening right now. And I think the potential is there to make a, a truly better world, but the potential is equally there to make it truly worse. It is kind of biblical in proportion. You say, God, why have you smoked me this way? And God's answer is to see what you would do. You know, it, it sounds really dramatic, but I, th- everything you're saying is so true in terms of like the, 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 the true end of the Enlightenment era. And it's like, well, what is going to be next? But I hope whatever it is that if we can't be guided collectively by facts and evidence, we could at least be guided by morals. Oh, good luck with that. Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing is a hundred years ago when we were dealing with many of these same things, we were dealing with a pandemic, we were dealing with wars, we were dealing with polarization, we were dealing with uh, like the, the fallout from industrialization, we were dealing with mega corporations that required the introduction of antitrust legislation because they were so powerful. Very, very similar situations. But what is different is that a hundred years ago, more people went to church. Yeah, they might not have believed it, but the idea that faith was something you did that puts you in your place with respect to creation and the creator, that you weren't the number one. Your frame of reference wasn't all that mattered and that there was a higher order and you belonged in this system and that that required some kind of acknowledgement that you had to behave in a certain way. That's gone. Nothing replaced that? I I think a secular society has introduced both more deep morality in some ways, but also more relative morals. We don't have 10 commandments anymore. We have the commandments we choose that work for us. That's it. And so if there's no common moral code to your point about If we can't do it based on evidence, maybe we can do it on morality. Do we have a shared morality? Is one emerging where we can agree on the terms of morality? I hope we find some shared morality, but to me that does not look imminent because we're all a little bit libertarian now, and libertarians are not about shared codes. They're about get out of my way. So we've talked about the value of labor and the pitfalls of profit-driven models of care. How do we make it a more caring economy? I've got three answers for that. Number one, population aging is going to be such a dominant reality that it is going to forcefully bring home just the simple fact that the essential economy is based on a caring economy. You just can't get to work unless 
the oldest, the youngest, and the sickest are taken care of. So GDP cannot happen until those three groups are taken care of. So that's point number one. Point number two is take care of yourself. Take care of yourself physically and mentally. But the second clause of this sentence is, and help others as often as you can. Make sure you are okay, but make sure you are aware of those around you. And make sure every day you are doing something as often as you can, doing something to help those around you. That starts normalizing the culture of care. And we can all do it in many different ways. And point number three is the golden rule. Treat others as you wish to be treated. You may deeply disagree with somebody else, but remember that you have no idea why they're saying what they're saying or what is going on in their lives when they're saying it. So just treat others as you wish to be treated. If there is one common morality in all of the monotheistic religions, in every religion, that is it. So be kind to yourself and be kind to others as often as you can and treat others as you wish to be treated. That is the beginning of the end to create a caring economy. I love that that's how we're ending a conversation on the economy is how to care for ourselves and others. It's perfect. Thank you so much, Armin. I just, I appreciate your time and your thoughts so much. I really thank you for reaching out. It's a real honor to be asked to do this. And it's such a pleasure to be with you again, Hannah. It's been so long, but I, I really, really enjoyed this. It was it was kind of like going out for a run, you know? <laughs> Except for your brain. <laughs> yeah, but like we were running together through a park or something. It was a really nice run. So there you have it. Our means three rules. Number one, the economy doesn't work until the oldest, the youngest, and the sickest are taken care of. Number two, take care of yourself, physically and mentally, and help others when you can. And number three, treat others as you wish to be treated. That is the excellent advice of Armin Yalnesian, and it may not be what you expected to hear from an award-winning economist, but I'm glad to hear it. What is the economy, after all? It's a system meant to serve us, not the other way around. Throughout this season, we've been having big-picture conversations, but by the end, we always bring it back down to earth with thoughts from our guests on how to be a part of the solution to these issues. A common theme has been to have these conversations, and that means you. Talk about politics, voting, racism, poverty, and what's fair and what's not at work. As Judith Goldstein said way back in episode one, if you can, have those conversations face-to-face. And on that note, no matter how global these problems can be, often our guests would talk about bringing it right back down to our own communities, local, digital, or otherwise. Really connecting with our own communities will be how we can invest in our priorities to make it the world we want to live in. Our communities might be even stronger than we realize, and that strength of community is what's going to get us through to the other side of all this change we're living through. Thank you for listening to What Do We Do Tomorrow? That was our last episode, and I'm so glad we could feature this conversation with Armin Yalnesian. In every episode, we did try to tackle a big complex issue with brainy people who can break it down to what you can do tomorrow. So if you haven't heard every episode, go back and give them a listen. 
We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. The news clip of Dan Patrick was originally from Fox News and featured by Daily Blast Live. This episode was produced by Noah Snyderman. Executive producers are Aisha Jara of ICC and Six Degrees, the Global Forum for Inclusion, and Mihira Lakshman at the Walrus Lab. I'm your host, Hannah Sung. If you like what you heard, share this, forward this podcast to a friend, and get on all the socials. Tell us your thoughts on what do we do tomorrow by using the hashtag TomorrowPodcast. To see more from the ICC and Six Degrees, please visit inclusion.ca. Thank you so much for listening.